0: You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic.
1: I'm Matt Garisimovic, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film.
0: And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. We're two friends who met studying in Russia who like talking about books so much that we made it into a podcast.
1: And speaking of this podcast, it is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know to understand these works.
0: If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, I think the people know what we're covering this week, continuing on with our, our massive series on Vasily Grossman's life and fate. But chug, Matt, chug, what chapters... Chug? are we recovering this we're week
1: chugging along chapters 32 <laughs> through 60 book one right now still
0: <laughs> yeah this is by far the longest book so don't worry it gets a little bit like 10 chapters shorter for each successive part but uh, as we did last time we're not going to be recapping what happens here there are the daily uploads for that uh, if you are following along you are obviously seeing that in the feed uh, but if you're looking at to start uh, from the beginning, because you're listening at a later date, or you're just joining a little bit later than everyone else, um, you may notice that some of our episodes are not in our main feed, and that's because we have moved them to a secondary RSS feed in order to avoid making our main feed unnavigable, you know, and having many episodes lost to time or lost to our dailies. So This every was month- our
1: Suez Canal, basically. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, so at the end of every month, we're going to be moving those over to a secondary feed. Uh, you can look it up under Vasily Grossman's life and fate dailies. I forget the exact title of it, something like that, but the link to it will be in the show notes for this episode and successive episodes. Um, and it will also be anywhere you can get your podcast, just like our main, this main podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was fun getting to update all of those old episodes like that.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a good time. It was a blast. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about these these uh, chapters, although we're not going to be recapping them, uh, just for the sake of knowing what we'll be covering. Let me just go through quickly the big like groupings of chapters. Why don't you? We're going you? through this... Yeah, this, just to remind... For those of you who are forgetting, like us, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I'd like if you could remind me, actually.
0: <laughs> right. We are getting the latter half of Ludmilla going to find uh, what she thinks is her wounded son Tolia, and, uh, and then arriving to find uh, that he has, in fact, died. Uh, that whole section, along with her going to see his grave and all that. Uh, we will move from there back on to um, uh, the home front a little bit, and there will then we'll move to the a, a pilot named Viktorov as he walks through the forests, uh, getting ready to deploy. He is sort of the the beau and, and unknowingly the father of um, Vera Spiridonov, uh, Spiridonovna's child. is Vera Spiridonovna is you know the um, part of the Shpochnikov family, she's the daughter of Marusia uh, Shpochnikova who died also in Stalingrad. From there, we go to uh, Abarchuk. Abarchuk is the first husband of Ludmila uh who many years ago was arrested and sent to a camp. Uh, we kind of follow him through a little bit, through his experiences and uh, having some not great political conversations, we'll say. Uh, and from there, we go to joining Sofia Asipovna-Levinton, who is another character from Stalingrad who was arrested, as it's very briefly mentioned at the beginning of Life and Fate, um, along with several other, uh, al- along with uh, Mostovskoy and two other people. And because she's Jewish, she is uh, now being sent to a, a camp, although she doesn't know it yet. So we follow her story of being in a cattle car, as well as several other loosely connected stories from the the, the era of the so-called Holocaust by bullet prior to the um, the extermination camps, uh, where before we finally go to uh, back to Stalingrad itself, and we follow along with uh, first Krimov, uh, our commissar friend, as he is trying, keyword trying, to give speeches to many of the uh military elements at the front line, before finally joining a uh, a house at the very front, house six slash one, which is holding off much of the Nazi uh advance guard, before finally joining in with another uh Spiridonov child Syrioja who is fighting in that house. And that's the broad broad scope of what we'll be covering in this episode.
1: Yeah, broad scope. Uh we got a lot
0: to go through. Yeah,
1: <laughs> this one felt like a lot going on.
0: It, there are just so many. I mean, each section has so much to speak about. <laughs> uh, is there anywhere? Do you want to start from the top, or is there somewhere else that like you'd like to begin?
1: No, I think we just got to go go right on through. As much as I want to do the section that I have inappropriately titled "Grossman GPT,"
0: <laughs> I appreciated that that section heading.
1: Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs>
0: You're um <laughs> thank you, so right, so for ludmilla we have we have covering the staff telling her about her son's death and then finally her going to uh see her her son's grave, which in this very um as we've been talking about this look into how I don't know bureaucracy or the normal life of of carrying out functions in war that are not on the on the front itself can kind of become over normalized. Um, and how that breaks down when you when you meet the human element, the reintroduction of, of the human into it. um is there Is there anywhere where you'd like to start with that whole realm of ideas, thoughts, feelings?
1: Um well, what I kind of found the most uh, well, I would say entertaining from this part because it wasn't really an entertaining part overall. But what I thought was really incisive here was the way that everybody else was dealing with luke Milla. because because it, it's not really that common it seemed based on what was said here for the military members families to really be visiting them uh one because i'm not really sure that they were allowed in most circumstances tend to not be a spot where civilians go uh but you know that's kind of beside the point It was just funny kind of how everybody, in a lot of ways, was just upset with her being there because they didn't like being reminded of the fact that they were dealing with uh, dead people, which kind of doesn't cross their mind because it gets so ingrained in the way that they're going about uh, living and just kind of working that the thing that really annoyed all of them was the fact that this served as a reminder to them and kind of breaks them out of their their everyday habits as you will uh and there's this quote from uh there's this quote that goes he felt sad about the dead lieutenant and sorry for his mother for that very reason he felt angry with both of them what would happen to his nerves if he had to give interviews to every dead lieutenant's mother and i thought that was just such a funny funny way of thinking about it um there there wasn't anything like deep there just i I just thought some of the ways that the characters are written are just kind of funny in a in a way that it's not uh, like in not in a way that clearly those own characters would would think is funny
0: right yeah well I, i do think that maybe there is and maybe this is just me approaching it from how i'm looking at it but the as i mentioned earlier The sort of bureaucratic approach to life where each of these people, even though they're dealing with life and death, uh, they're in, you know, they're a hospital or a field hospital of some sort. um, They have all kind of forgotten that they're all going about their daily lives. Um, you know, as it's, it's said with the, with that same commissar, you know, the commissar felt himself to blame for the fact that three patients had died the day before in, in, in Ludmilla's face while he, while well, he himself had taken a shower or his favorite dish of stewed sauerkraut from the cook and ordered and drank a bottle of beer from the store in Saratov. Now, obviously, um, he's not, he's a political commissar. He, he didn't have any real, uh, short of turning off their IVs and taking away their blood. He was going to have no real impact on, um, what the outcome of those patients but you know her approaching her arrival now shakes them out of this normal everyday oh i'm gonna go get some beer i'm gonna go get my sauerkraut um oh this is some good uh, this is a good uniform i should send this back home breaks them out of it and makes them see uh, the humanity again in the, the people they're dealing with which it's so easy to forget and i when i'm looking at that what i'm kind of getting is this again the sort of humanist approach to even when it is so easy to forget because you deal with it so much sort of the importance to of remembering each individual life that is passing through your care. And this is very obvious in, say, a medical sense, but even to, you know, in any other context of working with a a large mass of people, a bureaucratic system of any sort, uh, all the way from buying a subway ticket to, you know, I don't know, getting like mental health care, right? These are all similar systems. And you also have people that Grossman portrays who don't uh, let that entirely overtake them, right? The, the, The grave digging conscripts. Uh, you know they speak in hushed voices around the dead, and even when one kind of jokes about, man, it's so strange that there's only one mourner here. If you know in normal times we'd have one dead and a hundred mourners, and then you know someone kind of hits him on the shoulder and says, right, like, you know, people mourn for these people. People mourn for all the dead here all the time, even if we don't see the tears, reminding us of this sort of the emotional life that's going to exist for every individual person who passes through these systems, regardless of whether or not you see them or, or you are reminded of them. That, that's what I was taking away from this section, at least.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's an important point, and it kind of will be repeating probably parts of that because it is a a main strand that's running through almost every single part of this. I think when I'm re- rereading this and as I'm kind of trying to divide up the different sections and kind of think about what they're saying, I, I think that that's a one strand that seems to be running through all of them very clearly this time, That Maybe I didn't think of it as strongly the first time that I had, had read it, but it's inescapable on this read-through, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of this read-through, I think we'll be getting at ideas of you know humanity and how we should treat each other, and I think you made a great point. And um, now this will be, I think this is chapter, well, I don't know, right? this is a great episode, a point you made in one of the dailies where the the, the questions he's wrestling with here aren't necessarily new ones. And I don't think Grossman... And you don't think Grossman's posing them to us as new questions. Uh, but he's posing them to, them to us in new contexts. And as we'll talk about, I, I think Grossman very much does view this age as an age of a lot of new pressures on humanity, which now pushes those, those same questions, which have maybe fa- always faced humans into new n- new peculiarities, new specifics. It's
1: not just new, it's, it's bigger. You know, like that's the newness of it is the fact that it's it's mechanized it is just on a a larger scale than has ever been conceived of before and that is terrifying but I think like this chapter shows us there's this great quote that I love a lot everyone feels guilty before a mother who has just lost her son in a war throughout human history men have tried in vain to justify themselves so you're still you're dealing with a much larger scale but you're dealing with the same resulting effect which is there is just really no excuse or justification for why it is we do this um and if you come from kind of grossman's perspective on it that is there's is no there is no real reason why we sacrifice life for this it it just doesn't quite it doesn't quite make sense um and i think that's just any of the material aims of of a war just can't stand to the absolute devastation that you reap on those who are affected by it and it's obviously terrible for ludmila but you can imagine that this is um it she's still even though these characters feel very much like individuals they're still kind of types and they're still representative of a much larger group uh, of people who who felt this way as they were losing you know sons husbands their whole families basically during the war or you know anywhere it doesn't have to be this war that's kind of what i'm saying too
0: yeah absolutely and i think too just i don't think this is there's a deeper point to make here but in the way that grossman writes about Ludmilla's grief in relation to Tolya, um i thought it was it was a powerful way of uh, uh, going again going back to something you said to me a long time ago with, with Tolstoy. Um, I've always thought about how you said Tolstoy writes characters, writes related characters as if they're related, and uh, that's not something you get from every author. Sometimes you're just told these are siblings, and okay, you accept that for the sake of the story. But uh, in the way that Tolstoy writes, those kind of rhyming features that you really get this sense of of relationship here. I think you were speaking about Steva and uh, Anna Karenina in that case, but you know here too. I think it's it's fascinating to see Grossman applying not that same concept but applying the same idea into this relationship where the death of Tolia is not just sad because it's Tolia it's her son but it's her son who means something to her it's we we explore in her in her state of delirium what specifically Tolia means to her what it means for her own identity right like for her own fears and and uh her, her her own worries that no one loves her and only truly Tolia loved her this one lifeline and I it was such a powerful way of engaging with the loss of someone and, and how that always that will always reflect on us. And, yeah, it feels bad to say that, you know, in the moment of someone's loss that you're going to be thinking about you, but you will be thinking about you. And I think this, the way he writes it is is true to life. It's powerful. I thought it was well done.
1: Yes, I only want to pause briefly just on what is still thinking about it, probably one of my favorite lines from the whole book so far. Ludmilla knelt, knelt down. Uh Ludmilla knelt down and very gently so as not to disturb her son straightened the board with his name on it. He had always got angry with her when she straightened the collar of his jacket on their way to school. And I just I did talk about this during the daily episode on this chapter, but I loved the way that the sort of action connects the different time frames. I think it is so beautifully done. I think that this is such a good illustration of uh of a mother-son relationship especially kind of at this age where you're kind of getting some independence and you're trying not to you know sort of sort of tread on that as as the parent but they're still you know that that little kid in in some ways and so just this this one action that the narrator chooses grossman really chooses to to write to illustrate that relationship is not a happy memory necessarily but it's one that is is filled with with care and love in this case and it's just kind of um it's it's a very telling and specific instance i think it's not just um i don't know you can pick any whatever you want to do oh she loved him so much all this other you know there's a lot of cliche ways to write loss and grief i guess is what i'm getting at and this does not. There's no nothing cliche about this. It is hyper specific.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's hyper specific in the ways that uh, I think Grossman. This is something that Grossman does a lot. Is um, sometimes it's easy to focus on those. You know, if you go to, you know, if you watch, and as you, as I do, watch a lot of not very good horror movies, and you see people try to sometimes depict relationships loosely, you'll think back to like, oh, these happy moments of childhood, or oh man, I can't believe my brother's dead. Think of all these this highlight reel of all these best moments of us running through the grass, which is not really how we think of people in our real lives, or at least I don't. You know, you're probably going to be thinking, maybe you don't actively think about this, but you may remember the things you do the most, these little things, these little ways you, you know, you say goodbye to someone every morning, or the ways you that they come home and you have that dinner conversation, or in this case, you know, adjusting his jacket on the way to school, those moments that maybe you don't consciously remember, but are most deeply imprinted on you. And, you know, this sort of writing is so original. And like you say, it's rejects being a cliche, because it is so specific.
1: Yeah, and I th- just the part that I really love about it is not that it um, it's not a memory she's consciously choosing to conjure up, but it- it's one that comes to her almost by force. It's kind of like, I don't know, if you ever just have a smell that you smell randomly, like a, I don't know, a cologne or a perfume or something that somebody close to you had worn for many years, and you get that scent and it just kind of bursts into your imagination, just a- every sort of memory you could imagine all at once. And that's what it sort of feels like here. It's an almost uncontrollable barrage of of this. Like it's not, it can't be disconnected from, uh, from this movement. And so it's just a very beautiful, a very beautiful part of this chapter. I think is one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and we could we can move on from we don't stand a Forever. Yeah. I, just, I really <laughs> wanted to make sure I hit that before we left.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, and from there on from this moment of of. Brief disconnect from reality. Let's talk about a, a slightly longer disconnect from reality. Uh, Viktorov, the pilot, who's waiting for orders as he walks through a forest um, for a moment before they they leave. Um, this is something that's been bothering me the most this whole time coming into this episode. This is, a, this is one of the parts of the book that I've been thinking about the most because Viktorov is... I'll, the kind of our introduction to him is him walking through a forest and thinking of a, a fairy tale of, of this Prince Dolgoruki marrying this young woman. And days after they marry, the Tsar, the prince, is overthrown. I don't know what period of, of uh, imperial Russian history this is in. Um, and then, you know, Prince Dolgoruki is taken far away. And then, you know, for many, many years, this new princess Dolgorukaya is now searching for him. And um, he kind of thinks of Vera as as he kind of hopes that she would search for him in the same way that this uh, fictional Dolgorukhaya does. And I've been thinking about that because of... Uh, we didn't mention this in our daily episode, but we'll have a Prince Dolgoruki appear in the next section in uh, in, in the camps with Abarchuk, who you have... We have a Prince Dolgoruki, and already on its own, I was like... You know what? What place does it hold in the story? And maybe it's hitting myself over the head when you when you suddenly have <laughs> the, the fairy tale appear in a gulag. But that's what's been on my mind most approaching this part. um Yeah, what when when we're you're, you're talking about this, what what comes to mind for you?
1: um Honestly, this I would say, looking at it, one of the most important parts I think from his exchange here is that sort of. Uh, well, you get a lot where he's kind of the central figure of of his own story. and then you get that really long breakout chapter with this fight over an anti-Semitic comment that one of the other pilots makes towards another. and you know, it doesn't get resolved because they commissar is well, the commissar is talking about how this is a you know an illustration of how we're not living up to the friendship of the people. Uh, friendship of the nations and it sort of gets brought onto this political level it's kind of complex i would recommend looking at our daily episode for a discussion of that because that's going to take like a third of our episode if, if, we, <laughs> if we go into that um but i think that what that incident shows and what his sort of storyline more broadly shows is again like i mentioned during part one of the series the longstanding well by now long-standing I guess tradition of the lieutenant's prose and just sort of what it's like to see battle and military operations from the standpoint of the sort of well, almost nobody lieutenant uh the lieutenant who is not going to be remembered for anything particular even though many of the things that they do are spectacular uh but there is so much going on and, and so much loss that th- none of those things will ultimately be remembered outside of the context of the greater victory. And we get just a, a lot of sort of low-level military stuff overall from Viktorov. Um, you know, Grossman kind of concludes his part by saying that he's a, a young, narrow-shouldered lieutenant was walking through the forest in a worn tunic. How many people there were like him, forgotten during unforgettable years? And that's another quote that I really like. And it's sort of a question I think Grossman's almost asking himself as he's writing this. Like, you know, you think reading a book like this, wow, this is going to be a really great, all-encompassing work. But the deeper that you get uh, into it, the more you realize just that you're not even scratching the surface of what is there. And this is another one of Grossman's points, but not even just the amount of people but the complexity of all of them this is just one narrow-shouldered lieutenant that you know people aren't going to remember and we get how many chapters out of him well now amplify that by how many that we'll never even hear of and it's incomprehensible
0: absolutely yeah and and every second of it is concerned with all as they're beginning to leave all these other young soldiers too who have their own stories which are could easily have been the focus of these chapters. Of course, Victor, I was going to be, as he's already been a character, but, you know, these relationships, which are suddenly breaking up, all these, every sentence here suggests another story uh, of that could be told, another life, another tale, which is worth talking about, but there simply isn't enough time for it all. So, you know, like you said, that's a fantastic quote. How many more like them? It's For every for everyone he could include, there are thousands upon thousands more of similar stories, which will not be told and may mm-hmm. never be told
1: yeah and it's um it's is difficult to to reconcile with, really, just that sort of knowing that you're living in that era of very profound loss. and I, I think that's something that is well, probably specific to to this time because I mean there's always been there's always been wars, and people uh, have generally been aware that there have been wars, but there are sort of few times not only where there have been there has been this much destruction but also the just the readily available technology to document to capture to make known that level of of destruction so to kind of be to be in one of those those first times it's a very interesting kind of book to read about that and kind of think about that
0: Right. And I think that's going to be, for me, when I'm reading this, this is a theme that Grossman is wrestling a lot with of, you know, this this need to memorialize, talk about the people uh, of the war. And yet this recognition that necessarily by telling the story, by telling, you know, a real story, uh, you're going to have to leave most of it out. You're going to have to leave almost all of it out, in fact. So how do you, in in an amount of words that a reader will actually read, tell the story and get at the truth of what happened while necessarily cutting out almost all of the truth itself. And I think this will become particularly relevant as we're getting to the Holocaust chapters.
1: There, yeah, this is a, this is something very interesting. I think this is why Grossman can be It can sometimes be compared to religious writers in a lot of ways. Um, this is just a, can be applied to probably other things too. I don't know, but there is something about reading Grossman where you're not reading the, the, the factual depiction of something that happened but there is a deeper underlying truth to what he's writing that he's able to get at just amazingly and that to me is a, a really a really great aspect of, of reading grossman and so he when he when he draws this when he draws your attention in to let you know that yeah we're still reading something fake haha it it doesn't negate that what he's writing is in a sense true
0: right in fact it it heightens it too this this awareness that of uh that you're you don't have a complete perspective on the war this continual reminder of that fact
1: yeah and i I think that that is is really important to kind of keep in mind as well
0: yeah absolutely uh well if it's okay with you i think maybe now before we go on to talk about the camps before we get into some heavier subjects the heavier line of them maybe this is a good time for us to take a break
1: i think that is not a bad idea we'll be back in just a second
0: Well, this episode is brought to you by you, our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. That's where you can sign up for the listserv for the daily episodes, the daily emails we're sending out to accompany uh, each chapter we're reading every day. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this very episode, including links to all the secondary sources mentioned.
1: If you want to support the show, but you don't want to spend any of your hard-earned blooms, you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com. Or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Questions? Comments? Want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclitpod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it.
1: Okay, let's get back to the show.
0: Okay, so from here we go from shortly after the death of Tolia, we go to his his father, Abarchuk, who does not know his son is dead, who is in a labor camp in the in the far east in the Dalstroy. Um, and this is uh, when we start talking about this is where really where we begin to make these comparisons that uh, we've mentioned so often, where Grossman starts to explore the intersections of fascist forces and the Soviet Union, and what that means, which I think is an important continuation of that of that question, of that comparison to make.
1: Yes, I think that the thing that he's kind of honing in on here, and this happens, this is is one point of comparison across all of the totalitarian systems that he's kind of exploring, is how do you get people who are clearly being oppressed by the system to be some of your most staunch believers how do you do that that's that's almost it it doesn't make sense so why did that happen and and how does that happen and he kind of crossman kind of gives some answers to this but it's still uh, up in the air i think because if, if we really knew then we would be able to combat that of course um but you get a in this part, you don't really get an answer. In this part, you get an an exploration, I think, of abatuch who is the still the very staunch supporter of the Soviet system. And he is he is he's going through it, really. <laughs> I would say he's not having a great time, but he sort of I don't know. I think if he lets go of that that image that he has in his head, it's uh, so foundational to his his worldview and his perspective that I don't know that I don't know what he would be if he didn't have that. I think that might be the breaking point for him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I I really enjoy about this section is we we had a, a Discord user Sally who uh, a couple maybe a week or two ago said this, something that um, that they really enjoyed about this is the way that tol- Grossman never treats his subjects with meanness. There's always an empathy there, and that's something that we we really I think makes this exploration of Abar who is both a subject in the camps and also still a firm believer, makes this such an excellent section is um it's not it never feels mean. It really does feel like how, you know, how do you come around to this point of view and exploration, right? Because we will go between him uh, you know, telling other prisoners that they, that, you know, you may say you're an ex-communist, but none of us are because we're always going to be committed to the cause. Then the next moment he'll be thinking Someone ought to write a treatise on despair in the camps. There's a despair that crushes you, another that attacks you suddenly, another that stifles you and won't let you breathe. And then there's a special kind that doesn't do any of these things, but somehow tears you to pieces from within, like a deep-sea creature suddenly brought to the surface. Like that is, you know, Abarthrook is aware of what kind of despair he's under, and, and that that happens many more times throughout this this chapter or these, these series of chapters. He's a deeply miserable person, and he knows that. And it's the only the and we get we get to see that really it's it's his continued belief that is the only thing that can maintain <laughs> maybe maintain any sense of hope this unchanging commitment to that idea is the only thing that can that uh makes him. Live on day to day. Well, that and his son Tolia, when he has, does have a very sweet moment, imagining, you know, he's it's not in a place where, as you can probably imagine, you can afford to be that emotionally open. Uh, and so he dreams about meeting his son, and you know, Tolia would embrace him. A would put his head in his son's chest and burst out crying bitterly and unashamedly. They would stand like that for a long time. His son, his son, a head taller. And I don't know why why it's that last part of it, the son a head taller, which which really gets me about this. But there's just something so. Um, deeply sad and so deeply like i I can't even express the emotion that makes me feel of you know a father wanting and not knowing what his son looks like to wanting nothing more than to hug his son who is now taller than him i don't know why that gets me so but right there's an incredible amount of empathy in writing a bar um who is also just not a nice man in a lot of regards
1: yeah and we get a lot of questions about the gulag system and and everything and there's just this one line that encapsulates a lot of the mentality around it i think very well which is about repeating you don't get arrested for nothing believing that only a tiny minority himself among them had been arrested by mistake as for everyone else they had deserved their sentences and this is just something that seems to fascinate grossman and quite frankly fascinates me as well just this sort of uh, I I don't know this. It's almost like an, an intoxicating effect that ideology has on the prisoners, where they're unable to see reality as such. It is only filtered through this ideology, and that makes them completely unable to see what is plain in front of them, or to relate and talk to each other uh, in a way that almost you know makes sense. And th- this comes to the fore when. Abarachuk is is talking with his old political mentor Magar and we get that sort of scene that should be the ultimate devastation for Abarachuk, where his mentor is telling him that you know everything we fought for we've ultimately squandered and squashed and we, you know we're not good communists we didn't do the good communist thing of guaranteeing freedom all we've done is all, all we've done is is replaced one leader with another and, and we made a mistake and Magar ultimately kills himself and Abarachuk doesn't know what to what to do about that um he can't really make much sense of it all he wants to do, do with his mentor is now become the mentor that's the only thing that he can think to to do um he can't even really hear him out in that moment
0: and I think uh, I think that 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 moment also dovetails nicely with another moment earlier in in, in the chapter before, maybe two chapters before. So he is close friends with another old communist Ruben, uh, who is also Jewish and treated very badly because of it, but in, in, t- in difficult fashion. The other characters say, "No, yeah, they're not treating you worse because you're Jewish." Right after he's, this guy's been called slurs, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, "No, that's just that's just par for the course." You know, they call me uh, "you old man." They call you a, slur, a racial slur. That's just how they treat us yeah. all equally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, same, same. Yeah, but really. you know, because Reuben won't give his shoes up or, or won't help another uh, one of the the violent inmates. Uh, one of the not one of the non political prisoners, he is is murdered quite brutally. He's uh, a, he's murdered with a nail and a hammer, and you know the reality is pretty much everyone knew it was happening. And there's this passage here where I think where uh, Abartchuk basically outlines the the logic of the knife, where he says, "Yes, together they could have dealt with the murderer in no time. They could have saved their comrade, but no one looked up. No one had called out. A man had been slaughtered like a lamb." And everyone had just lain there, pretending to be asleep, burying their heads in their jackets, trying not to cough, trying not to hear the dying man writhing in agony. They could indeed have gotten up and stopped the murder, but a man with a knife will always be stronger than a man without a knife. The strength of the group of prisoners is something ephemeral, but a knife is always a knife. And uh, when we say it like that, we understand the logic of the knife is a completely amoral logic, you know, for better or for worse. And what what Baruchuk doesn't understand is that he also operates under this logic of the knife, where uh, you know he he got his old bower from being able to pass judgment on people. He used to be the man with the knife, and in being arrested, he lost that knife. But uh, <laughs> you know, I think what what Magara is trying to tell him is, you know, we this this logic of uh, we must be the ones with the knife, then necessarily eliminates freedom because we will not, they you know. The strength of the prisoners is something ephemeral maybe you could try that to the idea of like a proletarian class that they will always be that regardless of who has the knife they will always be oppressed under the knife of someone's there holding one i think that those two dovetails nicely and and abarchuk just not getting it not getting what magar has is is beseeching him to understand despite understanding other contexts we're like in a purely moral context yeah it obviously makes sense why that works but then you slightly Readjust it to a con to a political one where he's got much stronger feelings, and suddenly that same logic doesn't carry for him.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, I don't know what to say other than it's weird and complicated. And Grossman is very, very interested and very invested in this question overall.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And we get to it again. Don't worry. (laughs) Have
0: you thought? Hey, man, I can't believe that was the end of the time of the camps. Don't worry, we're not done. No. Yeah, and uh, speaking of uh, things that are bad, let's go to um a, a worse part of the book, worse in terms of what we'll be covering, not worse in terms of writing. I think the writing really hits uh really hits his apotheosis here, but we move on from here to talking about the beginning of the 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 extermination camps. The the transition from the kind of holocaust by bullet to Auschwitz, Majdanek, you know, Treblinka.
1: Yeah, we get the Sophia sort of scenes, and I say sort of because it starts with her, it transitions to her, but then also uh, the chapters are then connected to her based on who she sees on the cattle car, and you get some sort of, I guess you call them some flashback into some of the other people who are there, and they're pretty harrowing really i mean especially the scenes from this young boy david who's on the cattle car and kind of seeing what it was like for the nazis to rise from the perspective of a child which is just it's always amazing to me people who can write the children's perspective or what we perceive i guess as a children's perspective i don't know um in a way that kind of convincingly feels authentic like this. Um, and so, I don't know. These couple of chapters were really good. Uh, I want to make sure we do them justice, so I will say that I know we'll get to a lot of them in depth in the daily episodes for sure.
0: Yeah, so I don't, I don't want to rep- know if we want to repeat too much of that ground we've covered in the dailies because th- there's so much more in each chapter um, to talk about.
1: Yeah, these ones don't form like a cohesive, uh, mm. here's what it's about necessarily. <laughs> right.
0: Um,
1: in, in the same way, like the Victor of might be consolidated. So they they do have, they get more into the individuals that they're actually discussing over the series of chapters that make up the sort of part.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's one of the things I find so fascinating with this particular section is, is because we suddenly have a different way of telling a story. Up to this point, it's been a yes. pretty traditional, yes. like, okay, we've got this series of. Chronological events happening in order, maybe you think back sometimes, but you mean well not only that, but everyone
1: is uh, basically
0: an extra Poshnikov lover right <laughs> uh who was was pining for one of
1: <laughs> one of them <laughs> you know right, right. yeah um
0: <laughs> yeah. The, the true connecting force of the book is the is the hoardiness for everyone who encounters the shaposhnikov family for for them for one one member or another um so we have the one member the one. one one entry in the list who is not as far as we know horny for any member of the uh, Shaposhnikov family um but you know, we already begin on the fact that it's unclear we are following Sophia's perspective but it's unclear where she is because she's thinking back uh or she we kind of have this vague sense of of what she feels now but then she thinks back to being in the cattle car and then we carry the story forward uh, you know in that cattle car so we're in some future state thinking back on a past state Walking through that, we end on someone crying out. The next chapter, we go to a completely different character who, by the end of that chapter, we suddenly realize is the the man crying out at the beginning of the first chapter, carrying on to this other moment where we have this person we think is unconnected, who we then realize is a character who's known by David, who's the young boy who's in the cattle car with her. And then one chapter, which I'm I'm still stuck on trying to figure out in terms of um, carrying out this, uh, in terms of uh, following a, a mass execution by gun, Um, and the way it all comes together, I think that kind of carries into the second thing I've really been paying attention to here, which is we've been talking, we talked a couple of minutes ago about, um, how to talk about such a large event where so much memory is already forgotten, where we're necessarily, we're kind of getting at, we have to, if we want to talk about truth, we do in a lot of ways have to tell some lies or, either lies of omission or lies because we simply don't know and so the right already one question how do you talk about a war in which 60 million people die how do you tell each person's stories and how do you bring your readers attention to the fact that they are only getting a the, the tiniest sliver of what really happened there and now here we have that um taken from the war angle down to uh, to the perspective of that same question but in such an extreme circumstance, how do you talk about the Holocaust? Not just, how do you talk about the camps? How do you talk about transportation? How do you talk about the people sitting on those trains? How do you talk about the moments before a ghetto was liquidated? How do you talk about the moment before, you know, a young woman, one of many hundreds of people are gunned down into a pit? Uh, how do you convey that? And it necessarily, the, the same rules can't apply. It's just, they, they don't work. You, you they trying to tell it as a normal story falls short because this is not a normal story. Um, I mean, that's how I approach it when we're getting at this weird angle, this weird, this, these set of themes. And in the way each chapter works together um, is, yeah, this is such a strong, um, compelling piece. Uh, I could keep going, but let me, is there anywhere that you, anywhere that you want to zoom in on?
1: Well, not to zoom in yet. I just wanted to say too that the the a lot of the horror from these couple of scenes is that you have non combatants that are in the cattle car. Uh you can see with Abarchuk, like in this in in his prison camp, I mean, uh maybe you don't believe anybody should be in prison, but there are certainly some violent criminals in there where you're like, Yeah, okay. Um here on this you have i mean more or less you have like a lot of women and children which is an especially horrifying thing and i th- i think the way that the story is told it is it, it is phenomenally disorienting which must have been the experience on a cattle car so i think that the, it achieves a certain effect like that which is like you said needed for this part of the story um i think that the way the perspective is bouncing around and shifting i think it's really good i think it pulls attention to this part in particular and i think that this is a, is a really important part i mean it really is as as grossman is writing i mean it's still uh i mean some maybe not by the time that he's writing life and fate but certainly by the time that he has been writing some of his other things these are new facts that are still coming to light uh, as as he's writing which is sort of hard to picture now maybe but uh it was that was how it was and so for me this this one part that i found the most horrifying out of all was like i mentioned this young boy david and there's this one quote that i just found really haunting which said death who had once lived in a fairy tale forest where a fairy tale wolf was creeping up on a fairy tale goat was no longer confined to the pages of a book for the first time, David felt very clearly that he himself was mortal—not just in a fairy tale way, but in actual fact. And you know, this is something that uh, a lot of people take a very long time to develop, which is our own sense of mortality. And I think for a young child to come face to face with that is uh, especially horrifying in a way that I can't even quite put words to. And this sort of chapter with him was. Uh, was a tough read,
0: yeah, yeah. I completely agree. It doesn't
1: really need more. It doesn't need to be you know analyzed. It kind of just needs to be. There, there are some chapters in this book that don't need to be. They don't need my analysis. They just need somebody to read them and contemplate them quietly. You know? Yeah,
0: which this whole section, I I agree with you. I, I think that's what this is. There is not that much to talk about it. It's there to be experienced. And but the one thing I, I do want to bring in here is that I I what I've appreciated about Grossman and this is something I read and I think it's the, in the introduction to this book um, that, or no, it might've been the introduction to the, the collection, the road put together by, by Robert and Elizabeth Chandler that um, uh, Grossman carried around two letters that he wrote to his mother and he carried around two photos of the letters. One, one photo of um, his, himself and his mother and one photo of a, a, a group of a young Jewish women who'd been killed in, in mass by Nazi soldiers And, um, possibly, you know, one of the bodies was, could have been his mother's. I believe it's, it's from the town of Berdachev, So possibly, but, you know, impossible to tell. And Grossman writes that, not Chandler writes that they have in this last section of the road where they do include those two letters, that they have reprinted the photo of Grossman and his mother, but they have not reprinted the photo of the many, uh, many, many young women who've been shot and killed because so much of his work is trying to focus not on the moment of death. But on the, on the lives of those people to treat, not look at these numbers and get overwhelmed and say, and, and just let them in their death be forgotten, but try to move this, the, the conversation back to the moments of life. You know, even if it, those moments of life are the moments of, or, or horrible moments, it's a moment of life. It's not letting them be defined by that moment of death. Um, which, I mean, for me, in this kind of these, it, it, i noticed that a lot and say for example one of the that man we mentioned who was calling up for golda golda in the cattle train you know he's part of a team of of, of uh, uh, presumably all jewish people who are being forced to dig up bodies of jews who've been shot in the years prior and burn them um and through this whole process he can he keeps counting his he's an accountant by trade and can only count if we did this many burns today uh, we've covered this many towns there are this many burners in total, you know, he's he, he stuck calculating and is almost removed from this horrible process up until the very end when finally the shell breaks off his heart and he begins to call out for Golda, Golda, presumably a girlfriend or wife who was who was pregnant when she was killed. Um, And and so, you know, when I was reading that, I took that to mean, you know, this obsession with the process can over, overwhelm the actual reality, right? We have someone here who's, whose own loss has been uh, you know, as whatever you want to call it, a coping mechanism, a way, a numbing, whatever it is, you know, that covers up the real loss there. And and also, I think you see they continue through in um, the chapter of Natasha, who is, uh, this is still what I'm kind of struggling with, because it begins with her in the train car, but then very clearly she's been killed by the end of the chapter. You know, she's, she's shot and killed as part of a mass execution. And I, the thing I find so fascinating is that we have this is not a fantastical book in most senses, but here we have one moment of fantasy, fan, you know, whatever you, however you want to interpret it. Where the moment of death it, it does not, the story of Natasha does not end at the moment that she is shot and killed. Uh, she goes on to walk back to her town, and finally, uh, these old um, um, inability to dance in front of others is is gotten over, and she joins others and, and dances in the town. And when I'm reading that, what I'm what I'm reading is Grossman uh not letting the story end with the death of these people Uh, in this case it's you know this is some kind of fantasy or whatever causes it um it is when i'm reading it a a kind of a reminder not to let the story end here to carry it on however you can maybe carry it on in the moments before or whatever to not just let the story be one of of death right um, and there's so much focus on the moments before death. And the, with the librarian, this, these brief three paragraphs when the, the Nazis come to liquidate the ghetto or maybe take them onto the trains, whatever happens there, um, not focusing on the emotions of these people and, and letting their lives be their lives, whatever it, it is. Um, I think that's something that Grossman does well and I think is important to, to focus on in, in when we're approaching such horrible, um, horrible atrocities in our history
1: true and it kind of while we're on this subject of life death and the great beyond kind of links to i think the it links very well to the next part of the chapter or the next part of the book where grossman kind of takes a step back from well he takes a step back from the individuals to do his sort of large-scale theorizing about individuals this is a section that I inappropriately titled Grossman GPT. <laughs> and that's because there is one chapter where he talks about uh, machinery emulating humans and he's basically dis- describing the, the the modern hysteria over ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, he does give his sort of... some of his thoughts on how ideology works and how how fascism sort of crushes that human element within people. And I think that we've talked about this on daily episode, but as we're we're getting into this this discussion between fascism and communism, I think that the way that Grossman starts to differentiate them more and more as we go through this is that while they both do have, like I mentioned before, this intoxicating effect the ideology has on people where sort of all aspect of of reality is then filtered through the lens of of that. Uh fascism for Grossman it cannot it cannot be sustained by anything other than just bulldozing people and reducing them to something that is inhuman. Theoretically, communism it seems to me, in Grossman's view, does not that is not its goal. The goal of it should be freedom, and this is what Megar is saying when he's having this conversation with Dobruchuk. And of course, that's not really how it happens. And so that's kind of the almost the great um, I don't know the great tragedy of that half of the book, where it you can see how wow it could have gone differently, and it would have been nice uh, if it if it had um but but it didn't and so grossman is kind of talking about ideology and he says that it becomes an object of mystical worship and adoration how else can one explain the way certain intelligent thinking jews declared the slaughter of the jews to be necessary for the happiness of mankind and that's a great question how how and you see similar, not quite to that degree, but you do see also this, like we're talking about with Avarchuk and these other s- similar uh, kind of things that don't quite seem to make sense happening on the on the Soviet side, where people that are being oppressed are advocating for their own oppression uh, in in some cases, which is is something pretty pretty specific, I think, to to this time in which we are reading about
0: yeah absolutely and i think too going back to that earlier question we were talking about of um when we're when grossman is not bringing up new questions but is bringing up questions in a context which maybe the world has not seen before i think this is where he kind of comes back and addresses that point when he's what he as you say um there were also there were some jews who who maybe agreed at that extermination and you know how do you get someone to that point but also when we have um you know for example the guards in the the nazi camps when when it's mentioned the very beginning when Mostovskoy is thinking you know everyone all the guards could disappear and the prisoner guards would still keep on things moving as normal you know where and he asked this this chapter where does that obedience come from and he says is it could it be that a new trait has suddenly appeared in human nature no this obedience bears witness to a new force acting on human beings. The extreme violence of totalitarian social systems proved able to paralyze the human spirit throughout whole continents, um, and so yeah, I think that kind of speaks for itself. And that uh, Grossman is is not positing here that this is an uh, an age of creating new elements of the human soul, and this is kind of a rejection of again. Uh, in Stalingrad, the the ability to to for humans to be influenced and changed forever by a system is taken as as something that needs to happen for the Soviet project to work. And in this very chapter, he kind of says, you know, either either it can be the case that a system can change you forever, uh, or it can't be the case. And if it can change you forever, then fascism will be the end of mankind because they will create nothing but obedient, you know, soulless, humanless creatures who are crushed underfoot, or they cannot change it, and thereby fascism can never win because the human soul will always maintain and that it can only be obsessed with destroying that. that is can be its only goal. And so now you've got this rejection of what, both, you know, to the fascist idea, but also a kind of a rejection of the Soviet idea. So you do, right, we're bringing in these criticisms here as well. But, uh, you know, as you say, the, the levels of criticism, I think they directed at, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany are meaningfully different ones.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I'm I'm also interested in how this idea has been developed further um sort of outside of this context into now where we are today. Uh this sort of seems to me that the getting people to buy into what you're doing even if it is against their best interest is the most effective way in going about it. It's not just bulldozing everybody, uh, making everyone feel subhuman. It's actually uh, elevating people to a point where they feel as if they are, <laughs> it sounds crazy, like they, they are really not actually being oppressed, to make them feel as though they are uh, participating in, in full in the system. And this is something that is really pervasive, I think, nowadays. And that is 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 something that is kind of the same as when Grossman is writing, but it is in some ways has some very, you know, similarly insidious qualities as well. Um, But I don't want to get too off track on that because this is going to be a long episode already. I just wanted to highlight this, this last quote from this chapter where Grossman says, It is important to consider what a man must have suffered and endured in order to feel glad at the thought of his impending execution it is especially important to consider this if one is inclined to moralize to reproach the victims for their lack of resistance in conditions of which one has little conception and i think that's a re- <laughs> that's a really good um concise response to uh any, any number of hypotheticals that pose well why didn't why didn't this why didn't that why didn't you just over why didn't you just overpower the guards um well it's not that easy um you know it's sort of in the realm of yes theoretically it could have been possible in some cases but you don't really have you really don't have a conception of what that was like we think we do because we read about it and we see pictures and we think oh yeah that would be terrible but you don't really know what it's like unless you're going through it and you know reading is only one part of an experience it's not the same as experiencing it Mm -hmm.
0: so yeah and semi-related to this I think it's also important to take that same attitude into talking about writers in difficult times and pretty much in any Soviet era, right? One um, Before we began this whole series, um, I was one day reading an article, uh, which basically, and I'm not going to link it here, but basically it was like, uh, Grossman uh, did some good work, but it's really such a shame that he was so much, you know, he was not braver in pushing more for this. And if you read his earlier work, he's just... Right In the party line, and he was kind of cowardly going about it. Um, and I, and I was approaching it like this is this is something that still sticks to me. Not that it you know, you go after the author or anything, and be like, oh, you're wrong, but just, but just that general attitude of looking at um and reading authors through their moral successes or moral failures. and I'm not talking about the extremes here, I'm not like here to make the argument that if someone does the author does something heinous, you should overlook that, but but like do take them in the context of where they're living in. And if you especially for Soviet authors we can't conceive of the pressures they were operating under. And that's kind of a, that's kind of a realm we have to some grace we have to give them. And especially when we want to make this moral judgment of which we do see uh, more and more so in popular writing, but I definitely run across that, especially in terms of not only writing about uh, Soviet authors, but when I, in conversations they have with people about Soviet authors, there's this, this, this tendency to want to moralize in that regard. And I just don't think we can do it. And that's not specifically related to, related to this book. It's just a tendency I've run across in conversations so often that this line feels, uh, I, I should put it on a shirt or something. It's a, it's a great natural rebuttal. Um, if you've gotten this far in Stalingrad, it's a great natural rebuttal. I don't know if it is on its own, but either way. You're going to cause like car crashes and <laughs> people trying to read your shirt. Like, what does that kind of shirt say? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I'll get on a yeah, flag it, or something make it easier to pro- <laughs> for safety. On flag, <laughs> good, good.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good natural rebuttal, and it kind of I don't know that attitude strikes me as just a that's sort of holier than thou, and I I really dislike it um, because you can see how that that logic and that attitude can be applied in ways that are so completely inappropriate um to me it just strikes me as you don't we don't really have a grasp on the whole
0: situation yeah i would i would i would agree with that
1: but that's because i am (laughs) holy that's because matt is perfect (laughs) so he
0: can he can make the ultimate judgment right (laughs) right 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 right, right. Uh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) um grossman gpt
0: grossman gpt
1: and then i think we can wrap up the rest all at once the genya lovers, <laughs> the, the Genya boys, the Genia.
0: Uh, the <laughs> um, have they maybe they could they could fuf- they could find fulfillment in each other's arms. I think it, it's not working out with Genya for either of them at the moment. I think they should consider well, other options. Well, let's tell you what—that's not how it's going to end. <laughs> the boy, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs>
1: Probably the best chapter, one of them. I think I, I love this chapter so much because it's so. Like I said, I think it speaks so much to our fascination with technology. And how it doesn't really answer the questions that we want it to, or think it's going to. Um it's kind of this sort of as Grossman puts it, you can basically have a machine that it can do almost anything that you want, and the space on the earth that it's going to need to continue to compute more and more of you know, these things that we consider to be human. Uh, as it gets into those peculiarities of life it's just an ever sprawling expanse that it will need to take up on the earth in order to do that now we have computers that store data in ways that grossman probably couldn't have envisioned uh at the, at the time he was writing but you know the point is still kind of there
0: i think it holds up if you consider the energy usage of our 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 current equivalents to what he's talking about
1: well i don't i don't I don't know. I so I deforested my own backyard <laughs> before I started my Bitcoin mining operation. So I, I don't know.
0: Well, yeah, obviously. Well, I mean yeah. On I mean, just from a logistical perspective, you need that space for more cooling racks and GPUs. So I mean, obviously, it just right. makes sense to yeah. get under the trees.
1: Right, right, and uh, obviously, while I was kind of investing, I sort of tunneled under my own house for rare earth minerals. <laughs> <laughs> um. You're right, though the the energy consumption is something that that's a, that's like almost a separate <laughs> thing. But it's right we we've made things more efficient uh, space wise, but we, we haven't quite figured out energy. I don't know, I don't know if we will. We'll see, that's, that's a job for someone smarter than me. Um, I'm just here to read books and talk about them. Don't ask me about energy. So Grossman, he's he's talking about the the future age of the machines. Um, just pondering what will it what will it be able to do? Will it be able to appreciate our um, it's going to be able to compose melodies and paint pictures and write poems is there a limit to anything that it can do and can it be compared to man will it surpass man and Garsman is just thinking that yes it will be able to recreate a lot of what makes us kind of human but it will take space or energy or however you want to consider it just it, it's ever expanding it will never be able to fully encompass or envelop everything that i think it means to be human and he puts that in he spends that time just conceptually talking about and and he specifically says um it'll never be able to you know it, it will continually increase the dimensions and the weight in attempts to reproduce the peculiarities of mind and soul of an average inconspicuous human being so not even anyone exceptional just you know the random guy that you're passing on on the subway or the metro and it's just wh- whoever it's not it's not even anyone that you think is significant like us uh it's just a random person and w- w- no no machinery no conception can even get into all of those peculiarities and then he ends the chapter with the one line fascism annihilated tens of millions of people and i think that it's just grossman's attempt at trying to again further reconcile with what it means to systematically not kill but annihilate that many people um and it's it's a very profound chapter i find every time i go back to it i like it more and more. There's, we don't have to stay we don't have to dwell on it forever i just i really like this chapter a lot
0: no i think that was a perfect a perfect encapsulation of its meaning
1: well thank, thank you. you this episode of cameron agreeing with matt <laughs> sponsored by matt <laughs>
0: um and, and speaking of the the soul the so-called soul of a man let's talk about the soul of, of two men who share one soul and that one soul is love virginia uh novakov <laughs> and, and uh krimov um I th- I don't know if there's too much to, like really analyze in this section, other than the fact that I I do want to kind of highlight the the ways in which well, again we're covering the individual stories of of the people here, right? The many many stories. This is a great like section for just hearing getting into the stories of people and the experiences they're having, but also also continuing on the sort of um, as as uh, Kremov will turn it. The sort of chauvinist attitudes you'll still see among the 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 kind of liberatory forces here with. Uh, Novikov being, we, you know, Novikov is is working with Getmanov to figure out ass- assignments. You may recall Getmanov from our last podcast, from one of our dailies, where he's a, a, you know, he's kind of a party apparatchik who's been assigned uh, under Novikov, and he's really, really mad that he's under Novikov. Uh, what has he got? Military experience? Why is he leading this unit? Um, and uh, at one point, you do see Novikov trying to appoint uh, uh, who he considers a good soldier, and and then Getmanov says, "Well." He he is a Kalmyk, and you know this Novikov is like, well, he's a good soldier, and Getmanov is like, yeah, but. You know, it's 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 it, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous how us Russians have to sacrifice so much for these so-called national minorities. And they aren't even really thankful about it. he's really getting, you know, your uncle at, at 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 Thanksgiving kind of levels of conversation here. And, you know, Novikov gets he p- is like, <laughs> yeah, he is like your extended family member that's still mad about affirmative action. It's like literally this exact same <laughs> line of argumentation. Right, yeah. So if, if you've ever been in that conversation and uh, just know that it's it's been happening for a long, long time. Uh, Grossman sympathizes. So I mean, and, and we just learn more stories, um, and we learn more stories of the people that they're they're deploying with, and you know Novikov thinks about the importance of that. And I, I think for me, this whole section Novikov can really be, be summed up in the many stories that happen in in Novikov thinking. Um, the only true and lasting meaning of the struggle for life lies in the individual, in his modest peculiarities, and in his right to these peculiarities. Um, yeah, I again, i I don't know there's too much to say that. That's just been <laughs> Grizman's ethos, really, I think stated in in a single sentence.
1: this is a good I like this this particular chapter that this quote comes from though, where Novikov is standing on the side watching his soldiers come walking down, and he just in the, then he gets or we get the unintruded thoughts to fifteen of the soldiers going by. And it was just a, a very weird chapter. I thought it was very unique and it was very good. I, I liked, I liked that the sort of breaking up of warfare with just, okay, we'll think of this guy's again, but his dog, um, this soldier has stolen this other soldier's <laughs> girlfriend. Um, they're all just thinking about these, these things that we've all thought about it at some point. Um, <clears throat> and to me, it, it kind of meshed with the Kremov chapter actually quite a bit. Uh, because the Krimov chapter, a uh, few chapters, the one in particular I thought was good to pay attention to was this one where he's going to the sniper meeting where I don't know what official business they were talking about, but they were mostly talking about killing Germans. Uh, And Krimov is slowly mm, disgusted with the way that the snipers are talking about it because it's not just um sort of... Uh, I don't know in what way he would have been happy with it, but it wasn't him it wasn't a discussion of a soldier's duty to their country. It was, there's an ex- extended scene of, of one of the snipers who's essentially toying with, uh, two Germans. And so he, he makes them kneel down to execute them and then lets them stand up and kneel back down three more times. Um, and Krimov is just kind of like, well, I don't know if that's, <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's what you should do. <laughs> and then just the, the sort of indiscriminate killing, um, that they that that's witnessed in in the book where is saying well what if what if you accidentally killed like a worker or a revolutionary or an internationalist but can't really say that because he's bound to kind of keep their morale up and that would diminish it so uh I, I think that Grossman is very carefully touching on <laughs> very carefully touching on that subject as well of well I don't know is, is were there instances where there was kind of some dehumanization there, and uh, does that make it right? Uh, does 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 do these horrific acts deserve the same kind of horrific retribution? And that's uh, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, clearly Grossman's saying no. Uh, in in these In these cases, right? Um, he, he's saying to right to, to tread carefully to to avoid falling into that same dehumanization that the Nazis Mm -hmm. uh, were using to perpetrate what they were doing. And so that was kind of an interesting thought that I was kind of going to leave off on.
0: Yeah. Well, I I actually do think that um, I I had one last thing there with that specifically. Uh, He does also think that it's strange that he has never once been, been, been um, felt like in 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 terms of purging internal enemies, right? Trotskyists, uh, revanchists, whatever. He's never had a problem with the killing of them. Well, you've got where, to get
1: rid of the Trotskyists.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I mean. The, oh, sorry. I should leave the Trotsky off. I mean, that's that's self explanatory. But mm-hmm. uh, no, <laughs> uh, where he he's never felt weird about this before. But suddenly, when and he, when he's talking to these to these people, like you said, they they're not killing because it's the right revolutionary thing to do, and they're frankly they're not even really killing because. As they, you know, for any given reason for the motherland, they're just killing to kill. I mean, because they're Germans. Why not? Uh, there's no civilians in this front. If you're German, you're dead. And uh, now we've got the same thing that he's doing, but stripped of any ideological action. And now it's, it's revealed that this is the logic of the knife again. And he's kind of disgusted with it. And I think maybe we too are, are meant to, to see that too, right? And, you know, on some level, you know, war story is a war story. But I think we're supposed to empathize with, with Krimov's mild measure of disgust with this.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a, I was it was a good chapter. It was not, it wasn't where I thought it was going.
0: But other than that, I think um, I think maybe that's a good place to leave off.
1: I think so. We've 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 yammered on plenty here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we've 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 yammed, we've yammed, mm-hmm. and now it's time to, mm-hmm. to let things go. All right, well, Matt, before we completely wrap up, I gotta ask, what are we yamming about next week?
1: Uh, next week the the doors are open schools back in session we're coming back with some office hours we will we will be here to answer your questions i already have seen some coming into our email on things that people want us to talk about topic that came in the other day cringe dostoevsky instagram reels so uh <laughs> That has, to, that has to make it
0: perfect. We'll just keep those pouring in. Uh, don't ask for too many cringe Dostoevsky things. We we do have a sizable amount of our, our Dostoevsky liking audience. I'm so.
1: glad that someone sent that to me, but I dislike that I was one of the first things that came to mind <laughs> when they saw that.
0: <laughs> Mad is the leading going to become the leading image of both the anti paviar and Volahansky movement and the anti-Dostoevsky movement.
1: <laughs> D- not anti-Dostoevsky, just anti. Talking about him on Instagram.
0: Right. He's not going to be willingly up there, but he's, he, what he represents is going to be way blown out of proportion by everyone else in the movement.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> to help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, slaviclippod.com. And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters.
0: Yes, and that's Emma, Lauren, Erica, Michelle, Juliana, Diane, Oleg, John, Timex, Melissa, Baron, Aldo, Ben, Gabe, George, Claire, Amy, Allie, Soraya, Jackson, Molly, Emma, Mike, Marianne, Mickey, Eric, Regan, Mike, Peter, Eric, Ben, Claire, Jeff, Inez, Mai, Robert, Joseph, Daniel, Lou, Nina, Gary, Janice, Mary, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Amanda, Caitlin, Yitza, Irene, and Pac-Rob. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Paramotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes.
1: You'll hear from us again soon.